Hello and welcome to Unparliamentary Language, a podcast that is going to be broadcasting on BBC for the next eight hours. And how are you, Rob? Uh, very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Um, uh, this is a bit weird. I, I, our listeners may not know this, but because uh, it will be coming out slightly out of order, but uh, we spent about an hour and a half recording a Patreon bonus episode that's going to go in the main feed yesterday. So it's kind of weird because we've actually already done all of this. Um, we've had a nice chat yesterday and then had to come back and record a second time. Uh, so <laughs> I think we, we've had a lot of time chatting this weekend, which has been nice, uh, but uh, we should probably plow on into the headlines as always. Yeah, so our first headline uh, from The Independent, uh, A Life of Duty. Uh, yeah, this is the uh, sad news that the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, has passed away, age 99. Um, he was well, like one of the most recognisable figures in Britain, I guess, and was notable in his role not only as like the Queen's husband, Many people have stated how he, you know, has taken a back seat for 52 years um, at a time, particularly in the 1950s, where you might have expected a man to kind of take that role over a bit more. I mean, obviously, he wasn't a king, um, but he certainly let um, Queen Elizabeth uh, exert her influence um, at every stage throughout her uh, reign as our monarch. Um, and it's been very sad news. And it's been the subject of sort of every TV news channel since the news broke. I think this has been a real test of the BBC's charter and what it's meant to do. It's led to some quite bizarre um, instances of how Philip's death was reported. Um, I don't know if you've heard the clip, but there's one of his death being announced on BBC Radio Dance, which it, it just like a Yes, it goes straight from a dance track into the um, uh, God Save the Queen, which is impressive in like how they managed to turn it on a dime. And it, yeah. it kind of works. I'll put that into the show notes um, because it, I was actually quite impressed by it. Like whoever was like pressing the button, they got it dead on. So it kind of worked, despite the fact that shouldn't work at all. The other thing that we, we kind of alluded to in our joke at the top of the episode is that, um, that they like press a special button and all of the news channels are suddenly uh, various documentaries that they've already pre-recorded about him. Uh, this has had a bit of uh, pushback from people having a lot of complaints about the fact that basically BBC One and BBC Two were just that for a while. I don't think it was as bad as when Princess Diana died because I remember that as a kid. Like that was just kind of everything was on the TV was about Prin Princess Diana at the time. So I think it's not quite the same as that. And I think people have maybe forgotten that it's improved since then. But at the same time, it does seem a bit unnecessary that it's all of BBC's channels. Like you feel like BBC One is the news channel, if you see what I mean. It's the, the big lead channel and it makes sense to have it on there, but it doesn't necessarily have to be on every channel simultaneously. Yeah, I think that is, that's like why I'm questioning like that maybe some elements of the BBC charts are there. Clearly they have a responsibility to report it across all of their radio stations, their TV um, the internet, they're going to post that information out there and it's right because one of their duties is to inform the public. Um, but does CBBC need its programming interrupted to have that? Because that's what happened. And in an age when you were talking about like Princess Diana before, when that happened, it dominated so much news coverage because at least for me as a kid, we only had five channels back then and all of them were taken up by Princess Diana, apart from Channel 5, I think, which still kept on with some children's programming. You want that little bit of variety? Uh, and I I read many tweets after the fact sort of talking about the, the viewing numbers of the major channels. The BBC's coverage was down significantly as well as BBC Two. Um, ITV, which was also running footage, had under a million off for 9pm on a Friday, which is kind of one of their primetime slots. So that was significant. And the channel that gained the most views was Channel 4. And that was the one that wasn't 
putting forward anything on Prince Philip. They postponed their programming for a little bit and then said they would run a, a special on Prince Philip and then went back to their normal programming, which um, I know that they've in turn had some complaints about that, but I do think there should be some alternative out there for people who don't want to like follow the coverage. And I was, I was about to say, like, kind of ironically, um, I've just summed up the headlines and said what happened. And I thought I'm running out of stuff to say after five minutes, but rolling news channels have <laughs> kept it going for, for eight hours. And clearly they've got like people who know far more about Prince Philip than me and royal correspondents, etc. But um, yes, I think that's been I think that's been the other striking thing. This is the first sort of like big royal death since the Queen Mother back in the early 2000s, I feel. Um 2002 I think so like 19 years ago so it's been a while yeah and and as we've mentioned media has moved on a lot since then and how do you deal with it I was I was reading one article in the, the Guardian that said that maybe the BBC's response to this and having so much coverage might be a reaction to when they had kind of down well they were accused by people of downplaying the Queen Mother's death or not giving it quite as much coverage as some people expected um, but I don't quite know where this big mournometer is, where you're meant to point at it and say, "This is the right amount of mourning we should give um, to people." Um, it's it's a hard line to uh, it's a hard line to follow. And I don't think you're going to you, like with that kind of line. You're never going to find something that everyone agrees on because there are some people who are completely anti the monarchy and are like like there are people who are, were celebrating that he had died on the day he died there are people who who are very sad that he's died and then there are people who are indifferent in the middle and th- that means you're never going to find a level that is appropriate for the whole country uh i don't think and it's it's going to be a tightrope walk like how many people actually wrote in to complain for example about it being on like it's like uh, the only headline i saw was surging complaints but it didn't actually specify how many complaints there are and often these kind of things get played up in the papers a bit so yeah i I think they're always going to have a bit of a hard time uh but you know it would be i think it depends on the person as well because i think people might not have complained as much if it had been the queen uh as opposed to prince philip because um prince philip was a bit of a bit more of a divisive figure than the queen is um as a person so i think you know you you can see why maybe people would would take it issue with it um but also like i mean, I think the thing is for me as as someone who like I, I saw the news i discussed the news with my friends i didn't did not go on tv again for the rest like i didn't go on tv the whole day because i don't watch tv because the internet exists um and i, I like i think that's the thing it like affects different people like people complaining about oh it's the only thing on bbc one or bbc two i'm like well you've got all of netflix and all of like youtube like if, if you if you don't want to see it you cannot see it the only kind of thing I saw coming out from people I know was, uh, I hope they don't stop them showing a uh, line of duty tonight at 7pm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, apparently, no, that's safe. Uh, so so I think everyone will be okay with that. Um, the only other one thing I wanted to touch on with this was um, we talked a bit about Meghan Mark in a previous episode. Uh, and I saw a tweet around the time the news dropped where someone said, oh, how long before the British press start blaming this on Meghan Markle? And then within maybe 30 seconds of seeing that tweet, I saw another tweet where someone was saying, Oh, the interview from Meghan Markle is the reason he's passed away. And it's like, he was 99. 99 is an impressive innings for anyone. Um, like, I, I know that the Queen Mum just kept on going, but, you know, even with the best healthcare in the world, uh, because you're royals, like, 99 is impressive. And I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that there was a interview with Meghan Markle a few weeks ago. Like, it's just such a ridiculous thing to try and draw 
um, a, like it's not cause and effect. They're just two things that happened vaguely close in time. Yes, exactly. The the British press's obsession with Meghan Markle w- will continue for some time. Um, even in like discussions about the funeral, it's been reported that uh, Harry will attend, but Meghan won't. Um, another way of reading that story is that a heavily pregnant woman won't um, fly across the Atlantic, which is like fair enough. Um, with all of those things considered, it's uh, yeah, it's it's sad that she has to be brought into it. But you, but you're right that it, it is happening, and it is something that will happen in the British press and from the usual usual suspects. I think um, Nigel Farage was another one who tweeted and mentioned Harry and Meghan's name and some sort of deference to what happened. So um, yeah, fingers crossed the British press can move on from that obsession. But uh, you know, Piers Morgan exists. So, yeah, see what happens there. So let's move on from that. Our next uh, headline from the Daily Mail, keep calm and carry on jabbing, which I I still find it a bit weird that we use jab in this way, despite the fact I know it's the colloquialism we use for like flu shots, but it it does sound a bit weird in a headline like that. Yeah, Um, this is the news um, surrounding the fears about the AstraZeneca jab so and, and relating to blood clots. Um, so we'd mentioned in previous episodes how the EU had formerly had concerns and in some areas suspended giving out the, the jab because of these concerns. Um, this kind of came to the UK recently where they started to consider giving the jab out to um, not giving out to those under 40, I believe, um, and, and weighing up the risks of that. Now, it is important to stress that the effects of blood clots from this vaccine, the AstraZeneca one, are like incredibly low. Um, so uh, BBC graphic I've got here, serious harm due to vaccine side effects. Um, it's four in a million for a 55-year-old, 11 in a million for 25-year-old. Um, and you compare that to a 25-year-old dying with coronavirus, that's 23 in a million. Um, dying in a road accident, 38 in a million. Being hit by lightning this year, one in a million. Kind of similar to what we said last time. I mean, more information has come out. So yes, there's definitely some, it does look like there is, as we say, there is this effect. But the point is at the end of the day, that the advice still from the various um, uh, various um, medicine agencies is that it should still be given to people over a certain age because it is better than getting the virus. Yeah, exactly. So I, I appreciate, yeah, younger people may have to move on to the Pfizer or whatever. Um, but yeah, it'll be an interesting thing. I'm sure there'll be some very interesting studies into this as it goes on to see if there's like something to do with how they formulated their jab differently to others, which would be really interesting to read up on. Um, but the point is right now, it's like we, we are talking very small differences in percentages. And in the, as you said, in the elderly population, it's you're much better off getting the COVID jab than not. But the fact that blood clots have been linked to vaccines and some people are particularly like anti-vax and this is the type of thing that people worried about the effects of the vaccine will will jump on. It creates this very sort of, I want to say like tense atmosphere between like, this is the science and we've got to report the science responsibly saying that there is this risk associated with this vaccine, although it is still incredibly, incredibly low. But then how does the press report that in a responsible manner without whipping up kind of like fear or anti-vaccination sentiment? Um, I think on the whole, I I literally saw some newspapers put like the statistic on their front cover, which was like 0.0000095% or something risk of getting a blood clot with this vaccine, which I would hope at least puts into the general public's mind that this is not a huge risk and is so sort of like we've mentioned it before that the risk of blood clots is maybe comparable to the how many blood clots you'd expect to see in the general population anyway if they didn't have the vaccine. And I know even the 
Yeah, I was going to say that's that's the one thing. Like, I think I think there is. It's now more clear that there is an effect that is slightly larger than that. Like, I, I think I think that's why it's now like they're saying maybe don't give it to people under the age of forty, for example. But um, yeah, like so so yes, that that was what that was the information we had last time. I think I would just state that for the record, we're aware that that's not quite true now, but it's still a very low percentage, and it's it's something that uh, I think once these vaccines come through i mean we're getting to a point now when most of the older population have had their first and on to their second jab um now thoughts move move to how we vaccinate the rest of the population still incredibly important that we do that for a variety of reasons um you know i think if herd immunity was batted around as a as a term early on in the pandemic but if you want to get to that sort of level then you have to vaccinate the vast majority of the population for that to even become a thing so if they if they've got that in mind then they still have to press ahead with it um equally if vaccine passports are going to be a thing it does seem terribly unfair to let everybody who's had the vaccine who is elderly out and into the open air to do the fun stuff while all the young people are kind of like shut inside because they can't do anything because they because the vaccines aren't going to come to them because if they can't take the AstraZeneca one, which is the Oxford one, one sort of like produced in this country, the one that we've had like the main rights to get quicker. That's one of the big reasons we were discussing last time why we've been able to be one of the world leaders in vaccinating our population. Um, if that suddenly slows, then that's going to have a big impact on young people, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's reassuring to see that the papers are like saying, no, we've got to keep, as the Daily Mail said, keep calm, carry on jabbing, keep this program going. Uh, but I think it's just something to look out for in like months' times just to see if we're able to keep that level up, particularly amongst the younger population and if that vaccine rollout um, continues as smoothly um, as it does like th- through the summer. I think, as we've mentioned before, it's been incredibly successful so far, but we do have to keep up that level of success if we want to keep opening up the country, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And so our final headline, bad old days are back slash glorious 12th. Uh, so this is from the Metro. Uh, so this is talking about the current unrest going on in Northern Ireland, uh, which uh, seems, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you'll probably be able to give me more information on this. Um, I've followed it. I've not followed it super closely, um, but my understanding from the things I have heard is that this is uh, younger people, but still in the kind of areas where the troubles occurred originally um, back back before we had uh, the Northern Ireland Peace Treaty. Yeah, exactly. So um, yesterday, in fact, marked 23 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, um, which is sort of seen as one of the big stepping stones for peace in Northern Ireland and making sure that they didn't return to those days of the troubles with um, sectarian violence happening on the streets. Um, unfortunately, since about like the 29th of March, we've seen sporadic violence with crowds of like predominantly young people um, rioting in towns and cities. Um, and these have happened in some of the classic sort of like flashpoint zones in Londonderry or, or Derry, depending on um, how you, you might put your name that city, um, Belfast, etc., um, this is in te- this is included like petrol bombs being thrown at police vehicles, um, police vehicles attacked. Uh, we've also had um, sort of like young people throwing rocks and stones in there. And I think one of the more notable incidents was on, let me just get the date, Wednesday the 7th of April, um, where a bus was hijacked um, and then left to freewheel along a road before eventually being set on fire. Um, that's when it, you know, even though these riots had been having happening for about a week now, I think that's the event that really made sort of 
Great Britain stand up and take take attention, and that's when I saw Boris Johnson give his first statement on it. So there has been an increase in violence. The next question is, what's the cause of this violence? Um, so there's a multitude of different reasons. Um, one of them is possible that there's sort of like increasing evidence that senior figures in some traditional sort of like loyalist paramilitary groups have been allowing these scuffles to take place. Uh, you know, their existence is almost kind of like tied in with criminal gangs rather than being, you know, what they were formerly were, which is kind of like these paramilitary organizations that really wanted to, you know, promote either a loyalist or, or unionist cause. Um, they're letting that happen. Um, of course, Brexit is an issue as well. Um, some people have said that there's sort of like simmering tensions that the Brexit deal has caused within Northern Ireland. We've discussed how the withdrawal agreement essentially leaves Northern Ireland in this weird zone where there is essentially a border down the Irish Sea. Um, there are increased checks on goods and services that come through Irish customs. Um, and it's led to problems such as like food being suspended. Um, John Lewis, for example, said that it couldn't transport certain items to there, and, and now they have. Um, I think it's worth mentioning here that I don't think the young men in the streets throwing stones at policemen are doing so because they can't get their John Lewis delivery. It is not directly based around those Brexit issues, but what happens when you've got an effective border down the Irish Sea, it means that there is increased rhetoric from sort of like unionist leaders, particularly like the DUP, saying that, oh, we feel that we're being treated differently to the rest of the United Kingdom. We want to stop this withdrawal agreement and break it up somehow. It just ramps up the tension a little bit more. It means that those politicians on both sides, their rhetoric is far more inflammatory and goes back to reigniting those old tensions that happened before the Good Friday Agreement. And if that continues, then that's not going to help these riots to simmer down at all. If anything, it's going to exacerbate them. So that's why when we mention Brexit as a factor, it's not the only factor, but it's clearly something that's not helping the situation. Um, and if it was resolved or wasn't happening at all, then, you know, the government could, th th then it would increase the likelihood that this would simmer down again. Um, I think it's worth pointing out really that the original deal that Theresa May had in place, I know people were worried about the backstop, but that did at least solve this Northern Ireland question a little bit. The fact that Boris Johnson decided to go his own way on that makes me feel that this is a problem of Boris Johnson's making and it is one that he will have to solve if he wants to has many other unionist crises going on you know particularly we've talked about scotland in the past and the problem the conservatives have up with scotland and the snp and their wish to break away from the union um this is just another one where the government will have to take some lead on it um and just finally the, the other factor is covid restrictions and how those are handled so in particular there was a big funeral last June of um, a former IRA intelligence chief, um, which led to about 2,000 mourners on the streets. And among them was the deputy first minister, um, who was one of the like the leading Republican figures um, in for Sinn Féin. Um, and that the investigation into that has basically said that although those people didn't follow the COVID guidance, nobody would be prosecuted. And again, the, that decision that nobody would be prosecuted has led to tensions and felt that people think that there's one rule for some and another rule for the other. Um, obviously, COVID and lockdown brings out a variety of tensions for a variety of different reasons across people. Um, 
but when there seems to have been a flagrant rule breach or something in this manner where one side was, you know, um, where you've got one of the leading political figures there, it is very easy for the other side to attack that and demand some form of like justice for that. You know, you've broken the law, you should pay a certain penalty. Um, think of it as the equivalent I can only think of it like from like the UK side or the, the England side is is the Dominic Cummings reaction. You know, like think of how angry people were to Dominic Cummings for breaking those rules at a time of extreme lockdown. I think people felt much the same um, right there in Northern Ireland um, when they saw this figure doing it. So it's another one of those stories to keep a lookout for. Um, Northern Ireland is not one of my specialist like subjects at all. And that might be just a flaw of how news is reported and, and, and how I'm taught. We're always sort of taught when you're doing politics. It's like, here we go, here are the main UK systems and you'll learn a bit about Scotland. Northern Ireland's over there, you you won't really need to worry about it. But actually, the Northern Ireland has a very complex and sensitive political system. That's why you need the Good Friday Agreement in there. It's why it's such a, you know an important place to make sure that peace is maintained. Um, and the fact that there are now riots bubbling up there and possibly more issues on the horizon, it's just something to see if it does once like reach headline news again. Because uh, we don't want to repeat back to those. Those bad old days, as that Metro cover says. I was just going to ask, actually, because because I mentioned at the top, I said bad old days are back, and then I said glorious 12th. There are two headlines on this Metro front cover, and it's kind of a stark contrast between there's this picture with bad old days are back of of there's fire and, and the, the various people involved are silhouetted in an act of defiance. And then underneath you have uh, glorious 12th. And I think there's an alternate cover which said get the beers in. And it's just such a weird juxtaposition between the violence in Northern Ireland and the fact that people are like, oh, we can go to the pub tomorrow. The glorious 12th cover was rescinded because I, I didn't know this, but um, anybody who living in Northern Ireland would do um, the 12th is a basically it's a Ulster Protestant celebration held on July 12th with the Orangemen marching through, which is always these uh, orange men who are particularly very Protestant march through Catholic areas. And it is an area of high tension um, in Northern Ireland when these events tend to happen. Uh, so somebody at the Metro didn't realise this and put the glorious 12th, meaning that, you know, things open up on April 12th, but juxtaposed against the bad old days are back with the issue with the pictures of the uh, acts of defiance happening in Northern Ireland. Um, it was seen to be in very poor taste. That's why they decided to change it to get the beers in. Now, as you can say, it's still quite a weird juxtaposition of two headlines there on a front cover, but at least it's not incredibly offensive to many people in Northern Ireland there. Um, but it's certainly one of the uh, yeah the weirder issues uh, I've seen happening in uh, newspaper front covers, and to have one retracted so quickly just kind of shows you how seriously the Metro were taking those complaints. So moving on into our main story tonight, uh, Keir Starmer, one year on. Um, this is a slightly longer form retrospective than our one month on Brexit uh, uh, view. But yeah, no, this time last year we were sat here, well, I think probably just before the, the lockdown happened, we were discussing who would win the Labour leadership contest after the general election. We ended up with Keir Starmer. Um, and I suppose, yeah, a year is a, a good time to kind of try and analyse how he's been doing in opposition. Um, opposition is always a bit of a tricky job to walk where you can't really achieve much and you have to try and state your position, but also you want to stay the leader until you actually get a chance to run for a natural election, which in Keir's situation is a long way away because I don't think the Conservatives are going to, like after after our string of kind of suddenly weird general elections, I don't think we're going to have one for, for, the, for another four years. 
uh, I think they're going to go for the full length on this one because they can. Um, so yeah, uh, where do you want to start with this? I suppose maybe maybe we should start with the fact that it was a bit strange becoming leader of the Labour Party in a pandemic. Yeah, and that's kind of the that's been the one big political issue that has dominated um, ever since he became leader, and it's a very odd line to walk. I feel you've got you've got on one hand he's the leader of the opposition, right? He's meant to oppose, but particularly at the start of that pandemic, what the country needed or what people felt it needed was decisive action and a united government determined it to like defeat this virus as 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 a unit. You know, almost like a wartime coalition type of thing with both sides going, yes, we'll put aside our differences for the good of the nation to make sure that everybody's needs are addressed. And I think for those first six weeks, and particularly when you had times where, you know, Boris Johnson was in hospital with coronavirus, um, Keir Starmer did an incredibly you know, did a good job of being that, you know, opposition leader, but not in opposition entirely, just saying, yes, we'll do whatever we can to help the government get this country through this situation. Um, but then, of course, you know, as we've noted on this podcast on several occasions, there have been times where the government's uh, decisions on COVID or around COVID have been less than ideal, let's say. So the big ones I would talk about are the the, the PPE scandal, the you know, the inability to get effective PPE to hospitals and carers on time, um, the issue surrounding um schools and how one, if they went back at all and when they should go back, and two, the reaction to the exam results and how that was handled by the government. I think that those were two or three issues where there seemed to be a real divide between uh, Boris Johnson's government and Keir Starmer as the opposition. And that's where he tried to press Boris Johnson, you know, making real sort of that analytical mind that the lawyer side of him coming out essentially treating Boris Johnson as a defendant in the dock and him having to justify himself before the country. Uh, and I think in those those first few weeks, those first few PMQs, Keir Starmer performed quite well. I think it was it was noted amongst many people that Boris Johnson seemed not to know how to deal with him and seemed to be unable to answer any of his questions effectively. Um, I would say that some of that momentum has now gone. But I mean, Boris Johnson's big masterstroke is just sort of empty jingoism, I would say, Um, just kind of playing up to the crowd outside of the Commons. Um, The Commons has been quieter in general because of COVID restrictions as well. So Boris Johnson has lacked that cheerleading squad behind him. And and so has Keir to an extent. So it's, it's important to note that both of them have had uh, those issues, but I think that Boris Johnson has been able to to claw it back. Uh, but Keir Starmer, yeah, has been he's tried to make politics out of those points, but maybe there's a question of do people want politics out of those points at all, or do they just want more unity? It was it was one of the big lines from Boris Johnson actually when he would attack Keir Starmer, just saying, "Look at us, you're you're undermining us again. You're going against you know you you're." you're trying to undermine the, the hard-working NHF staff and nurses that have sacrificed so much. Why don't you stop talking about PPE and why don't you stop talking about... Uh, oh, like the, the other one, I guess, is the potential scandal that conservatives have been using sort of like their own mates to provide PPE and awarding exorbitant 
government contracts, as we've mentioned in the past, the most uh, the biggest example being test and trace and how that's run. Um, that should be something that the opposition really goes in on. But some critics feel that maybe Keir Starmer has failed to. He's mentioned it in the comments. He hasn't not mentioned it, but how hard he's gone on it and how that much that has caught the public, the general public's imagination. Do they really want this fight now or do they just want test and trace to work and they don't care about it until they'll, they'll worry about the funds later? Uh, that's been one of the big questions for how Keir Starmer is, is, is doing. And I've got some statistics here. Um, they've got, uh, there's been some polling, particularly in seats, in the 45 Labour seats where the Conservatives won from Labour in 2019. Uh, in answer to the question, Labour have played party politics during the pandemic, 55% agree with that statement, 20% disagree, which seems to suggest that you know people tend to think that party politics during a pandemic is a bad thing. People feel that Keir Starmer has done maybe too much party politics, which I think is a bit odd, considering when a lot of people, when they think of Keir Starmer, they feel that he has been too... Uh, not subservient, but just he hasn't really opposed Boris Johnson as hard as he can. I don't know what what's your opinion. Have you felt that that idea has come across? I read it a lot in certainly like left wing Twitter has the idea that Keir Starmer is like essentially Boris Johnson's lapdog. Um, but it appears amongst the general public that they feel that he's left wing and doing too much. Like like where do you fall on that on that spectrum? So no, I, I I don't think he is Boris Johnson's lapdog. I, <laughs> yeah. I haven't got that impression. But then, admittedly, a lot of the like I find it interesting that like there's a difference between left wing Discord and left wing Twitter. Uh, I, I've I've seen I've had been in some conversations on Discord uh, around this, and I think generally people there are basically they've they've lost Corbyn, who was previously uh, the person that, that they associated with, so they're struggling to deal with how Labour now fits for them uh, and but they don't go oh he's basically Boris Johnson like they will use the more normal terms you know like oh well just left of centre and things like that like there's definitely a group of people who feel like despite the fact there are a lot of um, remnants of uh, you know there's a lot of people who were in momentum and people like that who are in various positions around the Labour Party because Keir is now like the face of the party it feels like it's gone back more towards kind of the Tony Blair Gordon Brown years and I think that's one perception issue that's happening with Labour at the moment where it's like well I suppose they're the left party that we've got is the kind of impression I get from a lot of people when they're talking about it they're like well they're not the Conservatives but it feels like we're not pushing for the kind of things we were pushing for 12 months ago when Corbyn was in charge. So that's one thing I've seen uh, discussed. Uh, and I think the other thing is, it seems like there's a lot of, I think people get the impression he's a bit of an appeaser in that he's, like, it's hard, hard. like, the, the when you have two parties and they're the only two real parties are going for stuff, but there are going to be different sides of the parties and it's going to feel like, I've seen people being like, oh, well, if Labour fractures, and it's like, I don't think Labour's going to fracture over this because, like, people said the same thing when Corbyn was in charge and it just didn't happen. And people always said the same about the Conservatives as well. Like, maybe there was a very slim chance before Boris got put in charge where, like, they were going to split down Brexit lines in the Conservative Party. But I think that was more of an impression people got because that's what they wanted to happen as opposed to a thing that will actually happen because the Conservative Party is very good at maintaining itself as a thing and getting rid of, you know, as you said, getting rid of Theresa May when she had proved her usefulness. The same same will happen with Boris Johnson, I have no doubt. There will come a time where they just say, nope, that's it, bye Boris. 
and he gets kicked out because that's how the Conservatives keep themselves together. Now, Labour obviously has not been around as long and Labour has had splits. Famously, that's how we got the Liberal Democrats uh, back in the past as well. Um, But I don't think we're on the verge of some terrible breaking up of the Labour Party that people seem to suspect right now. Um, But there is... There are um, people with problematic views in the Labour Party. Uh, Some of them are MPs. And I think Keir Starmer probably doesn't do as big enough of a job of like going around and dealing with those. And I think we're actually going to come on to the points about anti-Semitism and stuff like that in a minute where we can probably focus on that a bit more. But yeah, um, it's weird. Again, when it's such a broad church... Like because Labour is basically anyone who isn't conservative uh, in most places. Like there are very few places where you can vote Lib Dem or vote in a Green uh, candidate. So I think they have this problem of trying to appeal to a lot of people. And Keir Starmer is appealing to some of those people, but not all of them, and especially not a lot of the younger people who were uh, kind of came into the party through Corbyn. Yeah, and I I do think that's one of the issues that Keir Starmer has has got and is. It's still a big problem for the Labour Party in general, um, is how you move on from Jeremy Corbyn, who was very popular amongst the activist base, um, but not that popular amongst the general public. Um, Keir Starmer came in and said, right, we're under new management. We're going to draw a line under that era. Um, and actually trying to talk to your, your, he tried to talk to the grassroots that saying like, look, we've got some, we had some great ideas from Jeremy Corbyn and he enjoyed some success in 2017, clear from the results that they had at the end of 2019. Um, that the general public rejected that entirely. Um, I'm not quite sure if the general public rejected his policy programme or if they rejected him because it's it, it's a big thing to remember that Jeremy Corbyn was quite unpopular amongst the general public in general. Um, I think some of his politics, um, some of his politics and some of his policies were actually quite popular and did force conservatives to rethink about how they managed the economy. We've talked in the past that that idea of austerity kind of died as much soon as the Conservatives saw that they're very, uh, <laughs> I want to say conservative, but Theresa May's um, manifesto in 2017 was very safe. Like she she costed everything. Oh, this care home thing. Yes, it will do. You know, like, and it tripped up that the, the, the general public didn't want that. They did kind of want these sort of like spending increases and these these promises that came under, under Corbyn. Um, so I think Keir Starmer has to try and keep those policies, but also try and move away from the negative public image that Corbyn brought from the general public, which I think was that the the party was seen as too left-wing, too radical. Um, I'm not saying that these things are, are, are true, but that's certainly how the general public perceived them at that time. Um, but the problem that Keir Starmer has then is that how do you keep those activists engaged if he has to go down a more sort of like Blairite, Brownite route, um, which again might be do the general public want tony blair back because by the end of it blairism was quite unpopular amongst the general public um and that's something that that lost as well that's why did the labor party go to corbyn in the end because it was a big rejection of what they saw as a failed policy of trying to be tony blair and seeing that failing under gordon brown losing that election and then ed Miliband losing um they felt they needed something new um so you've got a lot of factions in this party um many of whom want Keir to be more radical on one hand and maybe those in the general public or particularly those in those in you know seats like Hartlepool which is coming up for a by-election soon um suggestions are there that Labour are still underperforming there and may lose it to the Conservatives um, if a by-election goes ahead there, which would be a massive blow for Keir Starmer and his brand. I think when people elected a Labour leader, 
They really wanted one that would take back those Northern Heartland seats that they'd lost to the Conservatives in 2019. Um, and uh, reading an article from The Guardian, they described it as the Jose Mourinho effect. So I, I know you don't follow football, but I do feel this is a good... I've at least heard, I've at least heard of Jose Mourinho, yes. So Jose Mourinho um, is well, was at his time at Chelsea and Porto an incredibly successful football manager. But the problem with his style of football is that it's defensive and boring and not very nice to look at. But ultimately, it got results and it got trophies. Okay, So a lot of people might be looking at Keir Starmer and say, hey, your style of politics is particularly like boring and very much playing it safe. But if it gets results, if the polls go up because of it, and if you win these by-elections and if you win these seats... I, as an activist, am happy to take that. But the moment he loses, then more people are going to pile on him because he's not getting results and trying to watch what he's doing in politics is boring and ineffective and not getting people on. You know, like, it's a double whammy. So I feel that that's where Keir Starmer's style of politics maybe breaks down. And I think that the ultimate thing to sort of like draw the the line under it there is at least with Jeremy Corbyn, I knew what he stood for. He was a divisive character, but you certainly knew what he was for and what he was against. With Keir Starmer, I think it's more up in the air what he actually stands for on a given day. I know he's the Labour Party leader, so he's you know probably more left-wing than Boris Johnson, but can you point to a particular policy idea or a just a general feeling of like where he wants to take the Labour Party, the country. At the moment, it's just kind of like, we're not the Conservatives. And I feel that Keir Starmer needs something more than that if he wants to bring more people on board. He's got a lot of time. As you've mentioned, like the next general election might not be until 2023, 2024, if the fixed term parliament sort of like act stays true, but been ignored so much that I think the Conservatives will just vote for an election when when they feel like one and they feel the polls are favourable. Um, but yeah, the fact that it is just bad at the moment for it, or, or perceived to be um, bad, I don't think Labour would win a general election if one was held tomorrow. Um, he has got time, but he certainly hasn't got the big boost maybe that he had back in mid-June of last year, where I feel that he was, he was riding high on that success. But I do feel that the government was again going through a multitude of crises that made them seem a lot worse back then. Um, we'll go into polling in, in, in more detail later, but uh, yeah, I do feel that Keir is floundering a little bit in the public's perception at the moment. The next thing, I mean, it was a big thing under Corbyn, uh, the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, and that was definitely uh, brought up a lot in the media as a way to discredit Corbyn, um, which I think was, was a big thing that had to be dealt with uh, and was poorly handled under Corbyn. Um, you know, there definitely was a media narrative against Corbyn over it, but I think, as we discussed at the time, uh, there were still also problems with how it was handled within Labour. Do you think that's been improved upon? So, yeah, or at least it's been one of the ones, one of the big issues that Keir Starmer has addressed head on and saw as a clear problem for the Labour Party, whereas I think at least the perception in the media or how it came across was that Jeremy Corbyn found this as a, a distraction or or annoyance. Um, and certainly if you like listen to the, the panorama interviews of people who were within that, that, that team who had to investigate it under Jeremy Corbyn, that they felt that their efforts were being kind of actively uh, discouraged by those leaders in the party. Keir Starmer has aimed to draw a line under it. Back in April, um, in his big one of his opening speeches, he mentioned that he would denounce the stain of anti-Semitism and said that he will tear this poison out by its roots. Um, so it was very sort of like tough words from the new leader and at least made people feel that he was going to take it seriously. Um, on this issue, he has found kind of like 
strains as well. Um, within three months, um, you had one of his cabinet me- members, um, Rebecca Long Bailey, uh, sacked from the cabinet because of a apparent uh, breach of the anti-Semitic policy. Um, equally, when the Equality and Human Rights report into anti-Semitism, the Labour Party came out last October, um, Jeremy Corbyn basically tweeted about it before Keir Starmer had a chance to react to that report and questioned the extent of anti-Semitism under his leadership. Um, and as a result, he was suspended from the party. Um, he was later reinstated. But again, it shows that although Keir Starmer is taking a serious tack on this, he's still got some people within the party who are causing trouble on this issue or at least making it you know, uh, difficult to provide a united front on it. Um, the maybe the best thing in Keir Starmer's point of view for Jeremy Corbyn to do in the reaction to that report was to stay quiet, accept its findings, and the party moves on. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn felt that he needed to make a comment on that, um, precisely his comment was one anti-Semite is too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party. That last bit is the bit that Keir Starmer really didn't want to hear. He just thinks that the general public want to say like, no, we did wrong. We've learned from our mistakes. Let's learn from them. Um, So yes, I feel that Keir Starmer has more of a perceived handle on this issue. Um, but the fact that it took a suspension of the former Labour leader from the party and has forced him to sack other prominent cabinet members who were Corbynites again kind of feeds into that narrative of how united is this Labour Party under Keir Starmer and highlights the challenge that they've got. Um, factionalism within the Labour Party, we knew it was a thing under under Corbyn who had to fight tooth and nail to keep his place as leader in the party. He had to go through a, a second leadership election. Um, on the fact. Um, these concerns weren't going to go away overnight, and, and it's clear that they haven't. But at least I think on the, on the issue of anti-Semitism, Keir Starmer has proven that he's willing to take more of a stand on it than, than his predecessor. He's made it clear he wants to take this stand and that there needs to be some leadership at the top, I think we would all agree. Um, one thing that's kind of related to this that I've seen uh, going around recently is I've seen um, there's a lot of problems with how Labour has been handling uh, trans issues, especially in a year where there's been uh, discussion about the Gender Recognition Act and things like that that have led into what is essentially attacks against trans people in the media, horrible uh, stuff being published. Um, I mean, we don't need to go into the stuff J.K. Rowling wrote, but we all know that there are people out there who are transphobes writing horrible stuff. Um, and yeah, it, it's not good. Uh, the Labour Party response to that has been seen as pretty weak, I think. Um, there is a trans Labour movement within uh, Labour that are like have kind of kicked off this year. Um, they started their Twitter, I think, in about February, uh, and now have like a website, and they're they're doing um they're trying to like change this within Labour. But I have seen uh, that people are like you know people saying, well, I can't stay with Labour because they don't think this is a problem, so I've moved to the Lib Dems and things like that. And I think it's interesting because like we talked about these factions, Labour is a very big, broad church when it's basically not the Conservatives, uh, with the exception, as we say, of a few people who are Lib Dems or, or Greens, but. It has always been this kind of interesting thing where like Labour, Labour is economically left is the general understanding of what Labour should be. And as we said, that became more centre left with Tony Blair and possibly will do under Keir Starmer again. But then you have like what's socially left uh, being like the Conservatives are right in both cases, essentially um, right as in the political definition, not as incorrect, (laughs) just to be clear. Um, 
but yeah, like so the conservatives are on the um, you know the right side of the economic spectrum and the right side of the. It sounds so weird saying it because they're, <laughs> they're incorrect in my opinion on both counts. Um, but yes, uh, no, they they are they are right wing. That's a better way to put it. They're right wing on both of those sides. Whereas Labour is kind of supposed to be left wing on the economic side, and and don't get me wrong, is generally more left and progressive on the social side as well. But there are definitely some clear issues where they're behind where they should be. I think is probably the best way to word that, uh, in my opinion. And and so there's definitely issues like that going on. And I don't. I wonder if the next problem that's going to hit the Labour Party is going to be like it would be interesting because the anti-Semitism thing is a thing where I think the media can jump on it. Whereas like I don't know what would happen if more stuff about like them not taking enough of a stand on trans rights and stuff comes in because because the media in general are at the moment at very anti-trans so that would be like this weird I, I don't know how that would work in the papers i mean i don't know how they would try and press press an advantage against labor on that i don't don't think they could because everyone would be like uh well weren't you saying this last week kind of thing um but yeah i think that could probably be the next big challenge for um labor to face in this in this respect i think like i mean stop being against people for for something they are i think would be my 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 general like uh, summary like you know people don't have a choice in these things and you should not be uh treating them unfairly because of it it's it's that simple um but yeah i think there are definitely problems going on there and and especially with the the younger movement in labor um i think people in general in the younger age groups are more more progressive in general that's just just how history is you know as you get older you get stuck in your ways but i think also like right now there are a few things like uh not just trans issues but lgbt issues and things like that where the younger generation is very on board with a lot of these uh, and the of the higher ups in these various political organizations need to catch up fast yeah definitely and that's a big yeah that's a big challenge for Keir Starmer and Labour in general I'm going to make a gross generalization here but I think some of the issues that you've talked about are kind of like when if you're like you're socially to the left or socially to the right um those socially left ideas are generally popular like more in like the big cities the places Jeremy Corbyn was able to win greatly but maybe arguably less popular in those old red wall constituencies that have gone conservative. And some of the arguments are that people aren't going conservative up there because they feel that the conservatives are more economically on their side, but they might feel that the the conservatives line up with more of their social view of the world of what's happening in those type of places. Um, So Labour has to walk this weird line where they try and appease some of those views in those conservative seats that they that those seats that they lost in 2019 to the conservatives and what their social views are but also be able to maintain support amongst those in the cities who share that kind of much more socially progressive agenda and how do you balance those factors um we it's like labor's playing the election on on hard mode the thing they have to do to try and the coalitions that they have to build to get the seats that they want to win um it's a particularly different difficult challenge for Keir Starmer to uh, to tackle you know I, I i do think that labor should also be held up as a beacon for social progressive movements as well and yeah the more people who leave them to join the Lib Dems or the Greens or whoever who see them as a viable social alternative because the Labour doesn't support their views. Um, unfortunately, Labour will do an electoral calculation on those on those factors and see you know what is a vote winner and what isn't. Um, but personally, I do wish that Keir Starmer, if he wants to keep you know people on board, activists on board, promoting a good social message. I think that he does have to go a little bit more um, socially left than than he's placed now. But the thing is, as we've mentioned before, like I don't know Keir Starmer's personal view 
on like trans issues, for example, because he tends to not make like he is what you think he is at the moment. Like he's he's bland. We we talked about like what is Starmerism? What does he stand for? I couldn't tell you where he stands on that issue because, in my knowledge, he's never made a massive public statement on the issue, and and maybe that's a problem. It, it, a problem in a world where like. For these big social issues, a lot of people say that like silence is like compliance with the status quo. His perceived silence on those issues won't be seen favorably by by any of those groups at all. So we, we've already talked a bit about like trying to hold the party together. He's got to deal with these various different uh, factions and 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 various issues. But I think the big thing under Corbyn that I think rubbed some people up the wrong way was how Corbyn kind of had this position on Brexit of like, essentially he wanted to go with the will of the people. But basically I remember that, I mean, we've talked about it at length at the time when Corbyn just didn't move on Brexit at all uh, and didn't make any gains when he could have done by taking some kind of stance. Um, and I think, yeah, we understand that Brexit is is literally a divisive topic with um, it being splitting the vote so down the middle. But um, how, how has Keir Starmer like tried to take all that? Because I mean, there have been definitely some Brexit blunders that we've covered uh, from from the Conservatives in the last uh, few months. So has he been able to capitalise on those at all? So, so in short, no. And it, and it's weird that he hasn't, considering that he was the Brexit secretary under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, now, of course, he when he came in as leader, you know, in April of last year, Brexit was effectively seen as a done deal. I mean, I know that the withdrawal agreement hadn't been done, but we'd left on. January 31st. And I believe that Keir Starmer made it very clear that he wouldn't be campaigning to rejoin anytime soon. And his, we then had the the drama of would we get a deal, would we not, with the withdrawal agreement that, of course, went all the way down to the wire. Um, Keir Starmer was oddly quiet on that and didn't press the government either way, basically saying that, yes, he would vote for the deal. Essentially, the view that any deal was better than a, than a no deal, um, I believe, was, was the Labour Party's policy there. So they voted for this deal that now, apparently, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, seems to be having some bite economically and, you know, in a negative way upon the country. I think there are clear elements of Brexit where he can point to them and say, look, exports are down by 40 percent or whatever. You know, even if they do rebound in in February, March, we've got to wait for the figures to come out on that. Um but maybe a leader who was looking to make more of a deal out of that would have instantly gone in with it. But in PMQs, he's almost been allergic to answer the question. And even Boris Johnson has noticed this fact and tried to coax a Brexit opinion out of Keir Starmer, who's been unwilling to give one. Um, I think it's clear to me that Keir Starmer sees that he wants to the best way for Labour to deal with Brexit is to not mention it and maybe let it fall apart by it, by itself because again when we're talking about these these constituencies that turned conservative in 2019 i think one of those big issues was that people were fed up with brexit they wanted to get brexit done only one party really stood for a clear definitive end to that argument and that was the conservatives and that was one reason why people voted for them um therefore if it wasn't a vote for winner for labor why should he bring it up again that would be keir starmer's opinion on the matter however to many people who felt that keir starmer being quite an active campaigner for like a, a second referendum on the issue or at least mentioning it at one point when he was brexit secretary might have felt that he could have been a bit more pro-European in his approach. Um, that certainly hasn't been the case at all. And I think if you were a arch Remainer who felt that, yay, finally Keir Starmer's the leader, we're finally going to have a Remainer in charge of the party, uh, your wishes haven't been fulfilled at all. And he hasn't really, you know, 
come he hasn't delivered on that at all not that i think that he promised to deliver that in his uh campaign to be leader it was kind of that image was presupposed onto him i guess people like thrust that idea upon him but it wasn't what he was campaigning on yeah yeah exactly but that's not what he was saying at all and now he hasn't gone and done it yes yeah now he hasn't done it some people feel let down by that but I don't think Keir Starmer's got any sort of embarrassing clips from his leadership election where people feel that he was, you know, there are no big promises he made on Brexit during that campaign where people can call him up on it later. So, uh, yeah, what was it, it's daft, isn't it? What is one of the biggest issues and what should be one of the big issues that continues to dominate our politics uh, is one that the main leader of the opposition doesn't seem to want to touch with a with a 10 foot barge pole. And I think he will only do it if it then becomes abundantly clear that the deal Boris Johnson has made is wrong in several directions. But I think it might be it might be in like another year or a few more months and we might have to be out of the uh, COVID pandemic dominating our headlines before he even attempts to use that as any type of, of vote winner. And you could see that it's, um, but as you say, if we wait a bit longer, we will have a clearer picture of how it affected things. Uh, as we mentioned in our one month on from Brexit uh, recording, there's only so much we know right now and we'll have to see some long-term effects. But then come next general election, which, you know, few years away, that could be a key argument be like look here's how badly the current government has handled brexit and here are our many enumerated points as to why would be a a very good thing to throw in as part of the campaign as as criticism of of the conservatives but right now does it really achieve them anything when they're in opposition not not much yeah precisely um (laughs) they they can't achieve that much um but maybe one thing they can control is how the, the the public perceives them i guess This is kind of interesting. I think one thing I want to draw out of this, so what we're looking at here is a graph from uh, April last year. It's the last year. Uh, and you see the uh, the uh, percentages. Now, interestingly, new Labour leader elected happened just before this graph starts, and it takes a good way until mid-June for Labour to start to build up some momentum from below 30% and get up to near a 40%. Um, but I think that's when we were really struggling with the pandemic and the Conservatives just kept messing up one after the other. And that's that early surge you were talking about where um, basically Keir Starmer could do no wrong and everything he said to criticise the government about stupid stuff they did with the pandemic was clearly correct to most people. And so I think that was very much narrowed the gap. Pushing through, like just been steadily closing that gap with all the various stuff going on with the pandemic. And around November time, uh, Labour briefly overtook the Conservatives on average. And then I think what it looks like is, like, I I think the thing you said early on is probably the key to this, is that people are seeing Labour as not the Conservatives for the purposes of this. Keir Starmer isn't yet so important a figure to the average person that they particularly care about him per se, but they talk, they go, oh, Labour is not the Conservatives. So while the Conservatives were doing all this bad stuff that people didn't like, Labour was on the rise. And then as you see, like, oh, December, they have the lockdown, we've got the vaccine. And and I, I think you could probably... Well, at least my inference is that people see that as the Conservatives, even though actually it's mostly the NHS are very good at delivering vaccines. And so people are then like, oh, well, our confidence in the government has gone up because we're coming out of the pandemic, even though realistically, how much of that is down to what the Conservatives actually achieved uh, during all that time? Yeah, I, th- I think you're I think you're right there. And particularly the, yeah, like you say, this vaccine boost that seems to have happened over the past few months is certainly helping the Conservatives and looking at that website, Boris Johnson's own personal um, approval rating to go up. I just scrolled down and went thought, wow, 55% of people approve of Boris Johnson. I'd- don't know if I walked into a room and shouted that <laughs> that people would agree with me um on that fact um but 
yeah, I wanted to... I think that's the national polling. I think things get more interesting when you look at the polling of Keir Starmer himself and compare it to former Labour leaders. Um, so one, like... A few notes of like hope for Keir Starmer are that if you compare him to the last two Labour leaders, so Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, um, he is outperforming them one year in um, for how what how people view them as as favourable or not. Keir Starmer started up with about like a seventeen eighteen percent approval, and to be fair, that has dipped as his honeymoon period has gone down for the first time going into a negative net approval um, this month. Uh, But when you compare that to Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, they were polling at like minus 20 and minus 31 respectively for how much people like liked slash disliked them. Um, So Jeremy Corbyn had a minus 31.3% net approval rating amongst the general public one year in. Keir Starmer has a minus 1.3%. You'd still hope it would be in the positive um, if you were a leader, um, but at least you're not making so many waves that lots of people hate you. And it's you can recover from a minus 1.2. I'm not quite sure if Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn ever truly recovered from having their approval ratings dip um, so fastly. Uh, things are not looking good in the polls for Labour at the moment. But again, you have to remember that the party that he took over from in April 2020, before Keir Starmer was elected as leader, the Conservatives had 51.6% people saying they would vote for them and 28.9% of people said they would vote for Labour. That was a gap of 20 points. Now, the gap is still 10 points, so it's still pretty big, um, but they are closing that gap and going in the right direction. So that might be another thing to just help members people who feel that Keir Starmer isn't doing a good job. No, he's not ahead of the Conservatives yet, but at least he's moving the party in a direction or at least is changing the public perception of that party to when more people feel that they can vote for Labour rather than vote for the Conservatives. The big challenges that lay ahead, I think the the key performance indicators that we'll see in the coming months are we've got the Hartlepool by-election, which at the moment, uh, I think recent polling suggests the Conservatives will win that. That would be a big blow for Keir Starmer's Labour Party if that were to happen. Um, he's got to find a way to engage that group of voters um, because if they start worry, if they start losing those by-elections on a regular basis, that's a worry. Um, when you're in opposition, you would really like by-elections tend to go against the party in charge disproportionately because people just want to change to the status quo. The fact that the Conservatives could increase their majority or increase the number of seats in Hartlepool um, would suggest that Labour has got a long way to recover or a long way to go to win back those voters. Um, Secondly, you've got the local elections that happen on May 6th as well. Um, So that'll give us a slightly wider picture of how Labour's performing and if they're able to outperform or underperform what Jeremy Corbyn did, again, that's a big key performance indicator for them. Um, If they were to underperform where Jeremy Corbyn was, that would be a a big concern and feel that, you know, where do you go from there, really? We thought things couldn't get any worse and now they have. Um, The one shining light maybe for Labour is the um, London mayoral election that is happening as well. Uh, In that, polling looks far more positive or uh, Labour with Sadiq Khan set to take around about, like, I think a two-thirds lead on second preference is what I've seen. Yeah, but I, th- I think I think there's uh, some polls suggesting he'll just win on win on the first first vote. So for people who don't know, the London local election is, is the supplementary vote system, which is essentially like a truncated version of single transferable vote because you look at the first place votes and if there's no clear winner, you then use the second place 
the second preference votes uh, and top those up onto everyone to, to see where they stand. But you don't keep doing that all the way down the list. Um, you just do it for the first two preferences people put. Uh, but I believe uh, recent polling suggests that Sadiq will win purely based on that first round, which is, uh, I think, the first time that's happened in the London uh, mayoral election. Um, like, There's been clear winners with second preference before, like you know, we had Ken Livingston for a long time, and then we also had Boris Johnson for for two years run uh, for two terms running. Um, but I think that's the first time that's happened. We also have, as you say, we've got our local elections, which is also a bit weird because we have a I think it's supplementary vote again, but different, and it's a bit like how Germany does it, but not because I googled this the other day and some German while talking to some Germans, and they were like, "Oh, is it the same as how Germany does it?" And I was like, "Well, no, it's specifically based off how Germany did it in this one state." before Germany was a complete country again and no one else does it that way anymore. So I think it was like Baden-Württemberg uh, or something that did it this way. Um, and uh, so the, the, way, the way that works is basically every region in London, and so I'm in Southwest, which is a big region, um, gets to vote one London councillor in and then they take the remaining like supplemental votes after that to work out. Like They basically then fill in some extra seats to try and be a bit more representative, but it's not fully proportional representation. So it's a bit of a weird system where you have like a first-past-the-post winner and also a set of people from a list. Um, and I know we've gone through these versions, but this is specifically slightly different from what we discussed on our polling, uh, on our voting episode way back when, uh, in that this is kind of like a ranked-choice voting system, but there's also a first-past-the-post bit locally. It's weird. It is weird. And sorry, just to counter your point earlier, um, it, it has happened before when the first round of votes got over 50%. Um, and that's when, it, this is really me being a boring politics nerd, but the whole point the system was put in place was because Labour, who controlled the government at the time, wanted a London mayor. Ken Livingstone ran as an independent rather than as a member of, of Labour. And they were really afraid that he would split the vote and the Conservative mayor would get in instead. So they said, right, we'll do a first round, and if nobody gets 50%, then we'll redistribute the votes. And they hoped that Ken Livingstone would be the candidate who would be knocked out, and then all the votes would go to Frank Dobson, the Labour Party candidate. As it turned out, um, Ken Livingstone got um, the majority of the votes in the first round, and then the yeah, basically won on the first, first round easily, and yeah, got it re-ranked to him. And then said, "Oh, I'm Labour again." Like a tiny bit. Yeah, later. yeah, pretty much. Yeah, by by the 2004 mayoral election, he was Labour again. Um, but it was because of that quirk that we have this system in the first place, and now we're stuck with it. Um, but yeah, it would be it would be very impressive if uh, Khan was to do that. And yeah, I think that personally, from what I've seen, his main opponent uh, Bailey has been trying to run the least popular campaign in London that you possibly can. I think he's really trying to find the the, the floor of conservative votes in uh, in London. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, uh, there's a reason that that's not being pushed a lot um, by many other conservatives uh, around the country. But uh, yeah, I think that's the one safe bet that Labour have on election night. The rest will be a, a real test of, of Keir Starmer's leadership. And I think that that's more interesting for us when we're looking at it, because I think we know that Labour have a stronghold in London. It's the rest of the country, which we're more interested on what their opinion on, on Labour is. And because that's the area of the country that Labour will have to win if they want to win a general election in the future. They can't win it with London alone. No, definitely. And I, I think it's not surprising, as you say, that right now, London is is tending Labour uh, for these things, so it doesn't really tell us much uh, that we, you know, it's always nice to have more election results. Like, obviously, if they go really badly 
like if the council elections go really badly for Labour, that would be a surprise. And we would be like, ooh, okay, this tells us something about the Labour Party. But at the moment, it doesn't look that way from the polling. So I think that's what we have to say on, on where Keir Starmer is and what he's got to deal with coming up uh, as leader of the Labour Party. Uh, I just, while we were talking about polls, I just want to throw in a quick uh, mention of the the polls for Scotland that we looked at last time. Just very quick to say that the SNP seems to be bouncing back up from their slight faltering when we we happened to like look at the snapshot when they were at their worst, pretty much their worst point uh, because of all this stuff around um, did did the party you know act improperly uh, uh, around um, the Alex Salmon stuff. Um, and now it seems like they're bounced basically back up to where they were. So I don't think it'll be particularly surprising. Uh, we didn't think it would be, but hopefully we can get someone on uh, from Scotland to talk about that nearer the time or maybe just after the election to give us a, 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 a more local view. That would be good. Other than that, I think, as always, you can find us all over the web at parliamentary.observer. You can find us at Unpal Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as Unparliamentary Language, and you can find us on Reddit at forward slash r forward slash unparliamentary. Uh, and, of course, if you want to help us out, or you want to listen to those Patreon bonus episodes, one will be dropping in the feed for you to, to listen to, but the patrons will get it first. Uh, if you want to throw a dollar a month or more our way to help support the uh, the web hosting, the microphones, uh, the uh, equipment we need to do this recording the software and you need to edit then please uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash ttss and uh, sign up to be a patron uh, where you will get bonus content uh, and other than that i don't think there's anything else left for me to say other than it's good night from me and it's good night from him bye 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 um Good evening and welcome to the bar. Join Dr. Wilco as he investigates the histories of your favourite spirits and your favourite cocktails while mixing you a drink at the bar. The other bars may be closed, but a podcast bar will always remain open.